Well, thank you for your hearty fellowship and appreciate your prayers for me this week. As we turn into Mark chapter 14, we're in the home stretch of the book of Mark, these last three chapters. And it's a great, great passage today. As we see Mary pour out her valuable essence. And so I just start with the question. What are we willing to sacrifice for God? What are we willing to sacrifice for God? Maybe I should just start with a definition. What does it mean to sacrifice? It means to surrender something for the sake of something else. And several of you may have even experienced this last night. As a mother gives up her sleep to care for her baby in the middle of the night. When a mother surrenders her uninterrupted sleep for the sake of her baby, that's a sacrifice. And then she probably goes on to care for the other children and don't forget about the care and feeding of her husband. And there's many sacrifices that go on uh, within our families and within just your daily life. And Hebrews 11 reminds us of the many extraordinary sacrifices that people have given at unique times in history when Noah sacrificed a hundred years of his life to build an ark to save his family and by doing it he condemned the wickedness in this world. Or Moses when he sacrificed the pleasures of this world and chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. And Jesus instructed us in Luke 9 if any man will come after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same will save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gains the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? What are we willing to sacrifice for our Lord? So I'm going to call this passage The Value of Jesus. And so let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, would you come and meet with us? May Jesus Christ be lifted up on high. May we see him lifted up and give a renewed commitment to serve you and give our lives in, in service to you. Thank you for your word and, and for the instruction it gives us. In Christ's name, amen. So if you turn to Mark 14, we're going to pick up in the first two verses. And I'm going to call these verses... The evil plot. Picking up in verse 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said not on the feast day lest there be an uproar of the people. So we start with a description of time. It's two days before the Passover which puts this on Wednesday. And the longtime goal of the religious leaders of the day was to eliminate Jesus because he didn't fit their religious agenda, which we've seen in in the mark up to this point. He also didn't fit their political agenda. For them, they thought the best thing that could happen for them was for Jesus to disappear. These chief priests and scribes didn't like what Jesus of Nazareth was teaching, and they didn't like how he was saying it. And they were crafty in their approach as they planned his demise, but not during the feast because we don't want an uproar from the people. 
Now at the time of the Passover feast there in Jerusalem, many people came there from all over the country of Israel, and the city was populated with people, and many of them had previously heard Jesus teach, and there were probably even some there who had been healed by him, and the religious leaders knew they were outnumbered, so they said, let the crowd go away before we murder them, so there won't be a riot. And they had to been seeking how to secretly, craftily, and stealth capture them quietly away from the crowds because a riot would be bad news with them and the Romans. And think of these men. These were the spiritual, religious leaders of the day. They weren't the police. They weren't the equivalent of our modern day CIA. These were men who knew their Bibles. They were the teachers of the people and they were scheming the death of God's son. They were saying we can't do this during the Passover feast. We need to delay it because we cannot kill them when there's a national memorial celebrating God's great deliverance and redemption. The person they were plotting against was going to be the fulfillment of this feast that they were celebrating. While they should have been preparing themselves for celebrating the holy feast, they were plotting the most incredible sin of all time, the murder of God. They said, we want to kill him, but we want to do it in a quiet and a respectful way so we don't lose our authority. And the mockery is so dramatic. But in every way, the counsel of these men was turned into foolishness. They thought they were going to put an end to Christ's spiritual kingdom, but in reality, they were helping to establish it. They thought they were going to make him vile by this crucifixion, but in reality, they made him all the more glorious. They thought they were going to put him to death secretly and without observation. In reality, they were compelled to crucify him publicly before the whole nation. They thought they were going to silence the disciples and stop their teaching. And instead, they supplied him with a sermon forevermore. These men, who should have been the most welcoming of God's Messiah, are seeking his death, the ultimate crime. God's supposed representatives did not recognize God in their midst. Psalms 2 is just beautiful on this. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall have them in derision. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. All their devious plans are overturned by God's ruling hand. And contrary to the religious leaders' plans, because of God's sovereign decree, Jesus must die at 3 p.m. Friday afternoon by the hands of sinners as the Passover sacrifice. These first two verses of this chapter set out, start out with the blackness of evil that is very disturbing and threatening. But this only highlights the beauty of what happens next in the house of Simon the leper. Let's look at the next verses here in verses 3 through 9. And we'll call these the beautiful gift. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikered, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. 
For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do good them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. In the first two verses, we were in Jerusalem two days before the Passover. We now need to read a few verses in John chapter 12. It gives a few more details about this incident. In John 12, the first three verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with them. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Typically we think of scripture as flowing chronological in time. However, that's not the case in today's passage. The author has elected to use the first 11 verses of Mark 14 to introduce us to the key people and events. It's like a sandwich with two pieces of bread in the delicious center. Except for as you look at it, the center is delicious, but the bread on the outside is burnt and black and undesirable. And we have here two very evil events sandwiched around a wonderful event here in the middle. And this chapter introduces us to the beginning of the end, and it does so by bringing into focus the key players, the people that we've already met in this book, as they rise to prominence here at the end. The religious leaders, his disciples, his friends, Mary, and Judas. And we're told what they do, but the author does not give us the motivation for their actions. So we now gather in Simon's house in Bethany for supper, maybe six days prior. And he's known as Simon the leper, and tradition tells us that Simon is Mary's father, since Martha and Mary are serving the dinner. But there's no way to confirm that piece of information. So first, in verse 3, there came a woman. Mark describes this person as a woman, but as we saw, this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And it suggested that Mark did not include her name because she was still alive at the time the book was written. But Matthew and John give us her name. As the disciples and Jesus are having supper, Mary does something unusual with an alabaster box full of spikenard. Spikenard is a very costly perfume in that day. It was imported from the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in northern India and Nepal. I asked Peter to check with his friends in Nepal. They confirmed that thought, but they couldn't provide any further details. The cost is given to us is 300 pence. And in Matthew 20, in the parable of hiring workers for a day, the paycheck for a day's work at that time was a single denarius, a pence. So this would put the cost of this equal to 300 days of work. So this box is worth a full year's income. Mark describes for us the container. It's a sealed box that must be broken to be opened. And the volume is one pound. And a Roman pound is equal to 12 ounces. 
So that puts the volume of this equal to about a can of pop. This would not be something that a typical lady would carry in her purse. A perfume that costs a year's salary is not very ordinary to carry around with you. So we deduce that this is a premeditated, pre-planned action on her part. And maybe a little more detail about this. Archaeologists have found the remains of these boxes and tombs as a type of box that was poured over a person at their burial. And then the empty box would be left remaining on the body to finish dripping out. And in this action, she was pouring out her future on Jesus. This box represented a part of her financial security, her savings account, the kind of thing that you would tuck away for future needs. And what she has done is sacrifice her future savings. So what does Mary do with this box? She crushes it, and Matthew and Mark tell us that she poured it on his head. John tells us that she poured it on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And there was enough spikenard to pour out and cover Jesus from head to foot. And there was also enough concentration in this fragrance to fill the entire house with this delicious smell. And as we watch Mary do this, we see the incredible financial sacrifice she makes as she does this. And she breaks the box. There is no returning. It's a complete abandonment of self in this premeditated action. It's also very amazing of the generosity and expression of love that she has for her Lord. Inside Simon's house, Mary's love is shining brightly, but outside it is dark as they are plotting his death. A woman came and her action was unique in its thoughtfulness. She was generous in her giving and her demonstration of love was accomplished in humility. Next in verse 5, we see they murmured against her. They scolded her. And we look at the reaction to her action as the dinner guests growl at her. What was the immediate response of the crowd? I can't believe she'd do this. Why was this perfume been wasted? What a waste to pour out this expensive perfume on the Lord. Giving to God is a waste. And they were angry with her. It should have been sold so the money could have been given to the poor. But Judas's mind wasn't on the poor. John 12 tells us that his mind was on keeping the money for himself because the only poor he was thinking about was himself. And he was keeping the money as a treasurer and the money holder for the disciples. And they grumbled among themselves and growled at her. That's what they're doing. They're growling at her. If they had been a big group of followers of Jesus, why didn't they all cheer? They're the core group. Why didn't they say, I wish I would have thought of doing that? But outside, with the drama of the religious leaders, this almost seems like equal drama with these disciples scolding Mary as they condemn her. Why give this much value to Jesus? I could do so much good with this money. And the other disciples join the pity party about the waste of money. And their comments about the poor are a cheap disguise for their cold hearts and tight-fisted grips on their wallets. And when we see people give time and money and effort to God's kingdom, and it's not to our pleasing, and then we also can get in the scolding mode. Jesus corrects them, and in some ways harshly, but always lovingly, why do you bother her? 
She is a woman who's always been at the feet of Jesus, listening and loving, and she has done a good deed to Jesus. And we should remember that at this time Jesus also is poor, and the law gave instruction about the poor in Deuteronomy 15. This is where he quotes from Deuteronomy 15:11. For there's never for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. We have both the obligation and the opportunity to care for the poor. Jesus corrects his disciples, you always have the poor, and you can always do good for them, but you don't always have Jesus. And jealousy is a terrible thing in the service for our Lord. J.C. Ryle said of this passage, quote, The spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders is unhappily only too common. Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's visible church. There is never wanting a generation of people who decry what they call extremes in religion and are incessantly recommending what they term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and affection to the pursuit of worldly things, they don't blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly, saying, he is beside himself, he's out of his mind, He's a fanatic, end quote. She is just a fanatic. And by definition, the word fanatic describes someone who loves Jesus more than I do. Instead of owning up to our love of things of this world and forsaking them, we find it easier to criticize others. There came a woman, and she loved the Lord. Thirdly, in verse 8, Jesus says, She has done what she could. And we come to the explanation and commendation given by our Lord. Mary gave what she could to Jesus. Her possession of this alabaster box, what she laid down, and with her pride, she just laid this down, laid down her pride as she poured this on him. And Jesus goes on to say that she did what she could. She has anointed his body beforehand for the burial, and the fragrance of this perfume will follow Jesus for the next several days, all the way to his burial. A sacrifice for our Lord, in contrast to, our, to the critics who had done nothing. She has done what she could. And the people that did nothing are critical. All they've done is second-guess their actions. And we should take this to heart, as the scolding ones miss the significance, and the scolded one understands it. Some 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this wonderful action of love and sacrifice that Mary did for our Lord. In verse 9, Jesus says as he commends her, Verily I say unto you, go back a couple chapters to Mark 12, the very last of Mark 12, verse 43, where Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, disciples, listen up. You're missing the entire point of the economy of God's kingdom. Look at the widow at the end of chapter 12. Jesus said she had put in more than all the rest when she put two copper coins in the box. Why was that special? Because she has put in all that she had. 
She put the whole amount in the box. And these disciples who have been there the whole time criticizing the one lady who was willing to do the unthinkable out of love for Jesus in a dramatic display of humility, both these ladies are examples of what should be our response to our Lord. Jesus knew that this story would be reported in the scriptures. What a delight to have Mary have this action recorded to encourage us. In the same way, God has not forgotten what Mary has done. And God does not forget what we do either. Even though our actions aren't recorded in scripture, we should remember that God tells us that he does record what we do. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you minister to the saints and do minister. Hebrews 6.10 And in Revelation 20 verse 12 The books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of these things which were in that book according to their works. And this is good instruction for us that as God has not forgotten Mary's work neither does God forget our actions. And what we do for our Lord. Mary out of love for her heart. Has poured out her love for her Savior. She has done a beautiful thing. Because she did what she could. Let's move on now to verse 10 and 11. I'm going to call these the wicked plot. And Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve. Went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. We returned back from the dinner, back to Wednesday. And when the religious leaders find their inside guy to do their bidding, Judas arranges to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was a common price for a common slave, not something to get rich from. He had missed out on his piece of the profit from the 300 pence, so he now goes and sells his Lord. And it's here that the plot for the end begins. With Jesus working from the inside, he will lead them to Jesus. In the midst of this dark, evil world that we live in, we should be reminded of Mary's example to demonstrate love and kindness to those around us. Now let's look at the people in this passage. First, there were the religious leaders, the people that hated Christ and would have done anything, would not have done anything with him, but wanted to destroy him. Secondly, we have Mary, an example of what each of us should strive to become. Mary, a person of love and devotion, as she sacrificed much for her Lord. The disciples, the friends of Jesus, who were easily swayed by the events around them and played armchair quarterback, grumbled when other people served the Lord in ways they didn't approve of. And then Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus and loved him. And lastly, Judas, the kind of person that unfortunately exists in the church of God as we have wheat and tares among us. Now look at the sacrifice of each of the people in this passage. The religious leaders did not want to sacrifice their authority over the people. Judas sacrificed Jesus to make an income of 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold his friend to make money, while Mary gave her money to confirm her friendship with the Lord. Her action of gratitude and love is set in contrast against Judas's act of greed and hate. 
As time has passed, I have grown in my understanding of the sacrifices of my mother that she made for me as a little one. She sacrificed for my benefit. As a young person, I took those sacrifices for granted because I didn't know the cost of her sacrifices. And yet, my mom would not have counted those things as a sacrifice for me because she wanted to do those things for me as her son because that's what mothers do. All parents make sacrifices for their children. And we see that the more a parent humbles himself, the more they give themselves for their family. But we're also encouraged when we see our fellow believers sacrifice much for our Lord and sake of the gospel. It's an important thought we need to bring into this about Mary's sacrifice. A true sacrifice is because we want to do it. We don't think of it as a sacrifice. A sacrifice done in a begrudging way already has its reward. Sacrifice can be difficult when we give up something we truly cherish, but we do it because we see the um, long-term rewards as greater than the immediate perceived cost. As we remember the many sacrifices of God's people for the sake of the gospel, the lost, many families here taking care of little ones, there is much effort that God's um, given for God's gift of children, and we should be encouraged by Mary's example. So let's look specifically at the sacrifices Mary made. As we discussed her finances and devotion of a person giving extravagant love to Jesus at a heavy personal price, and the next sentence of treachery and betrayal for financial gain, have you ever given charity to somebody only to be disappointed in their response? We should be encouraged by the teaching of Jesus. The poor you will always have with you. And you can give away. We can give away everything we have. And we will still have the poor with us. She didn't have the power to prevent his imminent death. But she did what she could. She prepared him for the inevitable. And one of the most sacrificial, heart-rendering gifts of all time and Jesus says she has done a good work for me wherever the gospel is proclaimed what she has done will be told in memory of her what you consider to be wasteful I'm going to make sure the whole world hears of her love her devotion and her sacrifice a great woman who did a great thing and God also remembers what you do in service for him friends don't be weary in charity when we give to others out of our love for the Lord. We are serving the Lord. And this is something she wanted to give to Jesus. God's mission for us is not to eliminate poverty. But to minister to people in the midst of their poverty. She also sacrificed her pride as she humbled herself. In the same way. The focus of our charity should be to lift up our Lord. Not ourselves. And finally. She sacrificed her reputation as she was ridiculed by the disciples. In fact, all the people there that day, there was only one person that appreciated what she did. And he was the only person that mattered. There's something important in the story of Mary. Of all the people at this event, there's only one person that did not speak a single word in this passage. 
and that is Mary. Which brings us to the critical point. She sacrificed her self-defense. Of all, for all the people who did not appreciate her elaborate sacrifice, what did she do to convince them otherwise? Nothing. What she did is an example of our, the response of our Lord when he was falsely accused in 1 Peter 2.20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God is able to defend us when we are reviled. Our Savior was reviled. He was charged with being a pawn of Beelzebub, a blasphemer of God by the influ influential leaders of the land in a very public manner, which was designed to alienate his friends from him. And Jesus did not revile those wicked men in return. He did not show anger. He did not use that harsh language. He did not call for revenge. He prayed that they might be forgiven. And he remained calm as he borne all the ridicule as he trusted God. What incredible humility to give away a year's worth of salary, be mocked and ridiculed, and then remain silent. What did God say about these two ladies? The poor widow did cast in all that she had. Mary has done all that she could. They followed Christ in humility. They gave up their pride, their self-reliance, and demonstrated love for Christ. Jesus commends them, and in doing so, challenges all of us to do the same. Mary's sacrifice of this treasured possession points forward to a few days after this event to the greatest sacrifice. For the Lord who knew all the riches of heaven, the glory of God his Father, and he voluntarily stepped away from it all to become poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things. This is love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Mary looked at Jesus and saw someone who was going to die for her salvation, forgive her sins, and present her whole again before God in the future, which is more important than any future we have in this world. And she wanted to demonstrate her love and gratitude. What is Jesus worth to us? What value do we place on him? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we see the religious leaders and Judas seek to murder Jesus and Mary, give so much for him. May we value you as Mary did. May we enjoy, sacrifice much for you in service to you. We love you, Lord, that you would come and give yourself for us. In Christ's name, amen.